Welcome to episode 39 of the Rapid Change Matters podcast, a conversation with problem solver and provocative change trainer, Nick Kemp. My name's Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm chatting with top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I've got big news. Rapid Change Works is now running live training events, and you can check out the latest events coming up by visiting rapidchange.works, where you can also download a free, quick-to-read PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, along with all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Today's guest has been involved in the field of personal change for over 30 years, learning and utilising a wide variety of different models for change. However, in the last 10 years or so, he's created his own provocative change works approach after modelling and becoming firm friends with Frank Farrelly, creator of provocative therapy. It's certainly no understatement to say that his name and contribution of practical strategies to create change are recognised by many other leading therapists and trainers, and so it's with great pleasure I welcome Nick Kemp to this Rapid Change Conversation. Welcome, Nick. Good morning, Howard. Good morning, indeed. And we're just going to jump straight in, if that's all right. And sure. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself, what you do, and really, it's that origin story, how you got started. How I got started? Well, I was born in 1959 at 2am in London, and it was basically all uphill from that point on. But in terms of personal change and interest in that respect, around 20 years later than that, I was interested in a lot of uh, accelerated learning systems, meditative systems from sort of like 70s to the 80s, came across NLP in the 1990s and hypnosis and started to look into that aspect of things. But my work both uh, in, in the corporate world and then later as a uh, as a practitioner, stroke therapist, stroke coach, has always been in problem solving. So the theme that runs through all of these things is the same thing. How do you figure out how to do it better? How, how do you avoid doing mistake again? So is it, is it fair to say that you don't identify with the term therapist? Well, there's a lot that, I mean, we can talk a lot about terms and generalized terms, you know. I mean, I, I frame my uh, services to the public as nickkemptherapy.com is my website. Hmm. Um, but I would say essentially problem solver, therapist, coach, it's essentially all the same thing in terms of what do we need to do differently to create a better outcome? What do you want more of? What do you want less of? What makes it better? What makes it worse? So it's all about sequences and processes. And, and obviously you're, you're very well known uh, these days for this approach of provocative change works um, and working uh, and some of the, the modelling you did uh, with Frank Farrelly. What was it that attracted you to that way of working when you first saw that? 
Well, I'd already done a significant amount of personal development and I'd done all the NLP courses, a bit like a sort of a scout collecting scout badges, you know, do your practitioner course, do your master practitioner course, do your trainer training course, do your DHE course, do your meta master trainer course, do your NHR, endless stuff. And I came across um, Frank Farrelly in 2004 um, when my good friend Andrew T. Austin told me that he was coming to the UK. He sent me an email saying he's alive and coming to the UK. And only when I dug into the actual email, I saw it was Frank Farrelly, who was like the worst promoted in terms of marketing person ever because there was no information anywhere. And I went on a course in the south of England, and within 60 minutes – from what I saw and heard, thought, oh, my God, this is like when Pete Townsend and Jeff Beck first saw Jimi Hendrix play um, in the centre of London, the marquee, and they just thought, shit, <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of this, except it was hugely impactful, clearly a huge amount of skill, and it intrigued me. Uh, and, and at that point, did any of the stuff that you were seeing kind of match the the filters that you had learned about change you know because i've often heard people see you know from an nlp background a hypnosis background typically um, you know that they they watch a provocative change session in action and they kind of go i don't really understand what's going on here yeah well to me the the first impression was complete mystification it's a bit like sort of a cross between Milton Erickson and the Marx Brothers. You know, <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on, <laughs> which is a kind of interesting thought. Or maybe Bill Hicks and the Marx Brothers with a bit of George Carlin thrown in with Milton Erickson. Essentially, um, how Frank worked was, number one, it's completely conversational. So there was none of this, okay, now, where's the picture? What color is the picture? What position is the picture? Is it round? Is it square? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was very much as if talking to an old friend. Reminded me very much of the sort of Pete and uh, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore sketches back in the sort of like 70s and 80s. Mm. And very left field. So I noticed that there was a lot of dynamic shifts in the conversation. And from the outside, it made no sense. It's not the meta model. It's not the Milton model. There's no obvious techniques. There's no, okay, picture a circle in front of you, fill it full of this color. Nothing like that. But in these 25 minutes, Frank would call them interviews, there was like phenomenal shifts in the client's verbal and non-verbal behavior. So if you want to talk about rapid change, I mean, this was like broadband compared to dial-up previously. And remember, I'd been up front, one of the co-creators of NLP for five years solid before then, mm. you know, on many, many courses. So I've seen a lot from that world, but this was a whole different level. Do you think, and this this may be, I, I know you said even before we went uh, and recorded this, that, you know, sometimes there's an over sort of cerebralization uh, within the change world, uh, the change work world. And I, I hope this is not too cerebralized, but I'm wondering whether structurally, internally, the shifts that are going on are the same regardless of 
whatever therapeutic techniques you're using, it, it, in that if you're doing something that ultimately works, internally they, they're making some similar shifts, but we all just have different routes to get there. Yeah, I'd be but in the same way, you know, um, I could build my own house eventually, but not as quickly as if I had somebody who was in terms of what they were doing. So in terms of sort of, I think of it very simply, you have the end client behavior. This is what they exhibit in the outside world. This is this is how they respond in their life world in time and space. Hmm. The behavior is a result of everything that precedes it. So it's how they think, how they feel, the beliefs that they make, the states that they go into that's subsequently translate into the behavior that they exhibit. Internal environment is that internal processing that goes on. Also, let's remember there's an external environment which is equally important. So the idea that people have all the resources, all the resources, note generalization within, is a little bit optimistic to say the least. So all change requires some kind of movement. The degree to which that movement occurs depends very much upon how much you stimulate or change the pre-existing structure of how people are thinking and feeling. So if I'm working with a client and I go down an extremely analytical process where they're telling me about when their dog ran away at three years old into the forest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, some gathering information is useful, but if I'm not careful, what I'm doing is I'm just reinforcing the pre-existing ideas that create the problem state. Mm -hmm. So the difference in the provocative approach is it challenges the generalizations that the client has or has had so they become more empowered to be able to think, feel, and do differently. So it's very, very different to the traditional straight-ahead coaching, NLP therapeutic, talk therapy approach. So it, it's certainly fair to say that if there was someone from a perhaps a traditional counselling background who may be using, and this I, I admit totally, this is a stereotype of the, and how are you feeling now? Are you okay? Yeah. Um, they could look at a, uh, a provocative change session with their head in their hands going, oh, my word, what, what are they doing? Crikey, isn't this, uh, isn't More this dangerous? More than likely. But here's my question. All around the world, although not in recent years, when I first started out, and especially when I um, first hosted Frank back in 2015, and then ended up co-training with him in, in the latter years, which was a real privilege, all around, you'd have the, the question which would be, yes, but what if the client throws themselves off the Eiffel Tower because they took on literally what it is that you said, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And my question is that, well, number one, in 8,000 hours of experience and working in a clinical session using PCW, I've never had anybody do anything like that that but also the the reverse is important to say if you don't stimulate or provoke any change in the client but if you continue to very happily take their income their time on a on a weekly basis that is not necessarily in the service of the client farrelly once said wonderfully one of the quotes um it might be in the original book or might be in subsequent material he says throw out your professional dignity in the service of the client so 
essentially you're there to work with them and help them to an agreed agenda you know i've had people come to me with things which are quite frankly nuts so i've passed on them as clients but you work with them in whatever way you can to focus on empowering them to be able to drive their own bus and think for themselves rather than become reliant upon a set of techniques a person or a particular way of doing things so and one of the things that's coming out as, as you're talking and people I'm sure will pick up on is that there's kind of uh, this idea that maybe you've thrown out some of these um, you know, presuppositions of NLP that may have been at one time sort of drilled into you, um, namely that you have all the resources that one needs to overcome uh, in their situations. How did that journey happen for you? you know, when did you come to the realisation that well, perhaps like you decided that that wasn't the case? Well, it's like um, uh, first time I saw Frank working and in the break I was talking to Andy Austin and I said, I feel equally inspired and depressed. Yeah. Not really depressed, but sort of mildly having to rethink things because it was very obvious to me that a lot of the presuppositions that are taught in things like NLP are there essentially as guidelines of things to, that are useful to believe in, but they're not like tablets of stone. You know, Bandler and Grinder didn't, you know, carve them out in tablets of stone and send them down from the mountain of NLP to the assembled, unwashed NLPers to then literally believe and treat completely as literal. But the, the question is, does this stand up to scrutiny? So the idea that somebody has all, notice that means everything as a resource within, well, that's clearly not sound as a statement. It's useful as a belief in some contexts, but the difficulty with a lot of approaches is that people tend to just generalize too much. So instead of actually paying very careful attention to what's going on, they revert back to techniques, sound bites, um, and what they were told in their courses, you know, um, and then they meet the real public in the real world who've never been on the courses and bang, it could be like a car crash at times because suddenly people don't respond like that. You know, I've often talked to Andy A about it would be great to set up a weekend in London where you say to all the different disciplines all around the world, bring your very best practitioners and therapists and independently, a group of people to agreed standards will set up a group of clients who have never done any of these approaches. And we will give you a day to work with these clients and we will then see what the client's evaluation is of the coaches, practitioners, and therapists. Mm. That would be interesting. Yeah, that would be... Because uh... the, theories, the theory doesn't... or The theory's great, and the other thing is not everything works, you know. You might have the new Barry Manilow therapy. All you need to do is listen to Barry Manilow 24 hours a day, and all your problems will be solved. Well, it'll work for somebody. But the question is, how do you consistently, systematically, with evidence base? provide useful change for people that they can verify on an ongoing, sustained basis. That's the thing that makes a difference. I think Mandy found uh, the Barry Manilow treatment very helpful. <laughs> it probably works well, for her. Well, Guy, Guy sold a lot of records, so you could, you could definitely <laughs> say legitimately it's a good example of communication and influence. Yeah, absolutely. So with, with, with that in mind, this idea that I think it's impressive that you were able to 
you know, see something that made that kind of conflicted with some of the stuff that you'd come across up until then. But instead of going, well, I better just dismiss what I've seen, um, you're able to go, okay, well, actually, let's look at this. Let's question that. Let's go down that route and see where it goes. Um, I think is, uh, you know, a testament to the, the character that you are. Um, well, I think it's smart because there's some things where I'll look at some approaches and go, you know what? This is nuts. 80% of this is nuts. There's no way in a million years I might do that. But this little bit here is hugely useful and hugely interesting. So anybody, you know, who's looking at developing anything, first of all, you open your eyes up to a wide range of possibilities. You look at what works and particularly what consistently works, and then you take the very best and then you incorporate that and use that. Oh, hang on a minute. That sounds like NLP. That's the theory of it, where you originally start off with a whole bunch of therapists. Mm. I heard about Farrelly through a bandler in 2003 in a master prac saying, if you think I'm crazy, you should meet Frank Farrelly. And 120 would-be master practitioners all leaned forward and wrote down Frank Farrelly. So I'm forever grateful to Richard, who I interviewed on Frank and also Frank on Richard later on, mm -hmm. uh, for that initial spark and introduction. I mean, we talked in the, in the rapid fire round um, that the other thing that you think that you used to believe was true, but you subsequently changed your mind about was the, that you can change a phobia using the fast phobia cure. And again, that falls into that category of one of those things that it sounds like you've kind of done a U-turn on. How did you come to that conclusion? Well, you can, and Yeah, you can change a phobia using the fast phobia yeah. cure. But there's lots of ways that you, you could change a phobia. First thing is we have to determine that it is a phobia. It's not just anxiety. There's a lot of things that are framed as a phobia and not phobias. Persons, you know, persons got a fear of flights, but they get to the, see the therapist by flying from A to B. I've heard that before. So firstly, is it a genuine phobia? Secondly, um, when I... Back in 2006, I was asked to go on uh, BBC Radio Leeds to work with clients who had anxieties and phobias. Mm -hmm. And anybody that phoned in, I would see for the first time during an hour on the show and then would work with them. So there's not a lot of time. And let me tell you, when you're working and you're then live on the air with 50,000 people listening in, you really want to make sure that you've done a decent job. So it meant working very quickly with people. And I started to notice um, something I'd not really noticed before, which was in terms of classic NLP and fast phobia cure, you have the double disassociation process where you see yourself looking at yourself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. I began to realize it's not what the person sees, but how they then code or think about what they see. So person sees snake. Person sees snake, thinks to themselves something, gets feeling. If there's no thinking involved or no internal dialogue or no internal coding, how do they get the feeling? If they just see the thing, it's just color and shape or color and geometry. So every single person that I have seen in terms of anxiety and phobias, everyone I've ever seen is running some kind of internal commentary. I talked to Steve Andreas about this, you know, years ago, and this is how the uh, voice tempo exercise was created, which is featured in his book, you know, Transforming mm. Negative Self-Talk, Volume 1, because it's the simplest of processes, but it gets right to the bit, which is 
which is actually driving the feeling. It's not what the person sees, it's how they think about what they see. So yes, you can do the double disassociation so the person starts to think differently, but you can just change how the person's thinking and that gets a much, in my experience, much faster, more accelerated, um, more long-lasting result. And I have spectacular examples of this. Nick, do you make a distinction between unconscious, conscious, um, and especially within that process that you're talking about of, of the changing the voice tempo? Well, Farrelly used to wonderfully, if I ever wanted to get Frank provoked, all I have to do is start talking about the unconscious. And I just watch him just wonderfully <laughs> kick off where he goes, oh, for God's sake, the unconscious is the quote from him, the biggest waste basket in therapy ever created. They put everything they can't understand into the unconscious waste basket. Now, my view is that, OK, if we think about this simply, there's no sort of sign which goes, you are now leaving the conscious mind and you are approaching the unconscious. It's a big generalized description. So if we say unconscious, not what somebody is right now at this moment conscious of, then, OK, I accept it. If we talk about the idea that everybody is getting this unconscious installed learning, you go, mm, maybe not. If you had your uh, kids and they went to school and the teachers go, don't worry, Howard, it's all being unconsciously installed, even though they have no conscious ability to recreate, understand or talk about anything. It's all there. Legitimately, at some point you say, well, at what point does it actually translate into conscious awareness and the ability to utilize and use in real life? Mm. So there's big claims made. Also, it's a wonderful free pass for everything. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's just it's just unconsciously installed. Oh, okay then. It stops any kind of questioning. So it's one of those things which in context, yes, like so many things in a lot of these approaches can be said to be useful and true, but it's also used as this giant fuzzy get-out-of-jail card. Um along with many other elements. And I think more people are waking up to that now as time goes on. So things like the, the, the voice control, uh, the voice tempo technique, in terms of whether it was anxiety or uh, changing the way they commentate this, is it fair to say that them having to do change the representation of a, a voice very consciously, um, is that enough for it to... Uh, become an automatic pattern in the future or is it just that we're showing them another way and that well if you them. think about it everything if you think about anybody who's listening to this if you think about anything that you didn't believe was possible and then you believed was possible there's a process which goes on so usually something happens it might be suddenly the universe goes you know what whether you like it you're going to do it and you go whoa actually that wasn't so bad it might be that you think into yourself if you get so frustrated and you think, right, screw this, I'm just going to do it because there's an internal mechanism going on there. It may be that something to do with the relationships and how you interact with people or something else changes, which creates a, a shift in, in some particular way. So how, how people create stuck states is very much down to how they pay attention and what it is that they're paying attention to. 
with a voice tempo exercise, what we're doing is we're, we're showing people it's nothing to do with content. It's only to do with speed. If I see spider and think to myself, ah, oh, my God, oh, my God, in that voice, I will get the appropriate feeling in my nervous system from running that internal signal. Tick box, nervous system is working perfectly okay. If I think to myself, oh, God, it's a spider. The sound changes, the content is the same. It's not the content, it's how it sounds in the person's head. So most of what happens is to do, in terms of process, is, to, is how things sound to people that then decodes into the feeling that then creates creates the behavior. Now, once you've done a few things like anything, the brain goes, oh, okay, that's what it is. So it becomes automatically integrated. Whether you call that unconscious learning or integrated learning, well, you, you takes your money, pays your choice, takes your choice amongst the mm -hmm. language that you actually use. But it's all about constant education and learning. Um, so in that sense, you're, the difference here is you're empowering the client to be able to find out for themselves. You're not saying, right, you need to send, you need to sign up for another one of Nick's unleash the skills within course, which is coming up next week. That'll be another 3000 pounds. Thank you very much. And that'll keep you going for six weeks. And here's some products in the meantime, in case you start to run out of momentum. Mm -hmm. You're empowering the client, so they're running their own brain in the same way. This is often talked about in terms of theoretical presentations, but a lot of the time it's not demonstrated in actual real real life and facts. On a, on a, on a, different, a slightly different track, I'm curious to know whether people would think that you that a provocative approach goes against what many and how many would see things like rapport. Yeah, another massively overrated generalized term. Yeah, used. Bandler himself said rapport is not necessarily essential for effective change. Yeah, I've heard him say that on many, many times. People talk about rapport in in lots of different ways. You know, the worst sort of examples where it's taught, where it's this clunky sort of mirroring, matching the client, where you just think. You know, when a therapist or practitioner does that, you think, oh, for the love of God, please. Yeah. Essentially, if you want to change any kind of client behavior, you have, first of all, you have to get a connection with them. If you don't have their attention, you're not going to do anything. You may be the best person in the world, cerebrally brilliant with your whole, you know, Lou papered with master practitioner, master trainer certificates. But unless you can connect with the client and get their attention, you're not going to do anything. Now, how you connect with them and what you do within that connection is going to make the difference to what they, how they then change or what happens. So the, the difference with using the PCW approach and definitely classic provocative therapy is that you're making a connection with the client, so you're challenging their generalized beliefs. And that's done by being a lot more fluid and a lot more flexible. So I talk to people and I say, well, think it's a lot more like, um, as an approach, more Miles Davis than Little Mix or One Direction. It's not logical, digital, sequential. Mm. You're moving around and doing a lot of things simultaneously. So <clears throat> improvisational skills are useful 
um, language skills and certainly skills learned from studying Aaron and the NLP uh, linguistic stuff hugely useful. But essentially, you're treating literally what the client presents and you're challenging them as to whether those generalizations are helpful or useful. Uh, and that's a different, but you're doing it all conversationally. So on the outside, it looks like a simple conversation, but the client who's engaged in the process, whether they're in rapport or not in rapport, I mean, there's an idea that rapport means that we're all sort of like, you know, having a pot of Earl Grey with some toasted tea cakes and gently chatting away in hushed tones. Mm. My experience of that approach often is not in the best service of the client. So the important thing is the connection with the client. So the person and in PCW sessions, and the thing I noticed in Frank's sessions is the client was absolutely riveted attention with a therapist. Were they in rapport? You could say arguably from an NLP perspective, absolutely not. Was it effective? Wow, yeah, without doubt. It sounds like an odd question, but do you think clients are always the best people to assess the effectiveness of a, a therapeutic intervention session? And what I mean by that is that I think a lot of clients will leave uh, sessions that they've done with people feeling understood and loved and cared for and supported and therefore chalk it up as, well, that must have been good, yet they don't get better. Well, it can be. First of all, we've got to determine what the client's expectational sets between client and coach or therapist are really important. What is the person coming to see the person for? Mm. What are we agreeing? So before I see any client, I will always get them to fill in a set of client notes that determines what they want from the session. Number one. Number two, every session is recorded. This is unusual. The client gets a recording of the session. Classic third person being able to listen back classic NLP talk therapy um, approach where the client can listen back to what's said because it's on the record. The important thing is that the person comes um, and the time is usefully spent so they get what they want. Now, you know, otherwise it's a bit like uh, having your car that's not particularly working. You take it to the mechanic and the mechanic is a lovely bloke. He makes you a wonderful cup of tea. You have a couple of toasted scones. You sit on the bench, you look at the car and he goes, let me tell you how it about the history of cars <laughs> and how I got to be a mechanic. And two hours later, you think he's, he's, he's delightful bloke, but it doesn't change what's going on in real life with what you've come to address. Mm. So the difference is that you're more invested in working and helping the client than being friends, having a happy conversational time with the person. Yes, it's important to be ethically appropriate and work in the best interest of the client, but you are laser-like focused on helping the client change their problems. Because often the inhibitions and the limitations in the client's thinking and sometimes in the therapeutic approach, and there are some which definitely this fits, is actually the limitation in being able to help the client and assist the client in becoming more empowered. I mean, I mean people won't know this, but before we uh, recorded this today, you'd been kind enough to send me a couple of clips of some sessions that you'd done. And I watched and... I found it absolutely fascinating and riveting watching. Um, and if it's all right with you, uh, Nick, I would love to be able to post on your episode on the page um, 
Sure. So, some some link to some videos of you of you doing some stuff so that people can get a real sense of it as well. So that they've got this podcast, sure. but they can also see it in action. But it's struck me watching that the difference between someone doing, I would say, traditional NLP or, or even hypnosis versus what you were doing is that it is so conversational, but it reminded me of, I, I saw it almost like dominoes, that you would say something and it puts them into a position where, like dominoes, it pushes them into a stance or a position where they have to go inside and make certain internal shifts to respond, rather than you telling them directly to do that. Definitely. And there's two, fun, there's two I mean, okay, massive generalization from Nick at the moment, but mostly true. There's yeah. basically two... The approaches fall into two ways. One is direct approach with the client. Did you, have you, will you, are you, et cetera, et cetera. The other is indirect. So it might be like, well, people who live in the south of England, you know what they're like. I heard that. I read that. Where the client puts themselves into the frame. Mm. So you're working in a very multi-layered way. You know, within PCW, there's fundamentally 27 key stances that a practitioner will take in order to stimulate or provoke change uh, in the client. So you have this flexibility, which is massive, way beyond anything I've come across before. And, you know, whether you're working with anxiety issues, tougher things, addictions, compulsions, food-related problems, it's not the amount of time that the person's had the problem for. It's how they're paying attention in the here and now. So all change is immediate. It's not gradual. Something's either moving or it's stationary. You could say it's moving at a slower rate depending upon how you're interpreting it or watching it. But as soon as somebody changes the focus of attention and the way in which they pay attention, they then change the subsequent states that they go into the beliefs and the filters all then open up to different possibilities. It, it, it's just such a massive uh, area that, that, that you know you, you cover, and in terms of you know so many different stances, how do you go about training people, and how do they go about getting good at this? Good question. First of all, um, when I saw Frank working. Um, Frank never really explained anything. So people would just like sit and watch. It's like watching Eddie Van Halen play electric guitar and you've never played guitar and you sit there and you go, shit, what's that? You know, I may have a guitar with six strings, but what the hell is he doing? Mm -hmm. So my job was to start with was to break things down and to make things more systematized. I've done more work in Japan with medics than anywhere else, any anywhere else in the world. I'll be doing my 17th trip uh, wow. next year to Japan, and in 2019, I'm presenting at a medical conference in Japan. So I've trained hundreds and hundreds of people in Japan. I started off by teaching the basic elements of provocation, and then in Japan, the first time I was there, the doctors there said, "Nick, son, we want PCW practitioner," and I thought to myself, "Oh God." Here come the dark clouds. This is my worst nightmare. I can <laughs> see this panning out, you know, certifications and all the associated problems that come with it. But I thought, you know what? No, just, Nick, calm down. Think about this. What do people need to know at a basic level so that you would say that you would equip them as being practitioners? So from that, I set up a 10-day training, which requires – evaluation, case studies, and a lot of other things. And in that 
in that training, people learn how to work in the here and now, how to use the stances, how to use um, what I call metaphor elicitations and challenges, and how to work with changing processes. So it's very intense and very concentrated. Next year, I'm already booked in New York. In um, I'm going to be there in March. I'm going to be in Austin, Texas in September. I'm going to be in Japan in September, and we're looking at other stuff as well. But the key thing is that people get to practice and really learn how to do stuff. I'm looking for the value in, in what people can demonstrate. So, you know, it's not like sitting in a giant room with rock music blaring out and Nick says, turn to 32, page 32 of your manual. Mm -hmm. This is very much about precision in paying attention and notice, knowing what to do and how to do it. I also run a PCW one-to-one -one platform, which I started about this time last year, where people book in with me by Skype and have individual sessions where we will look at footage of clients, particular client problems, or they may want to be a client for part of the session. So you've got the CPD element runs through things. Because no matter how brilliant a training is, you need to be constantly working and developing and refining if you want to get better at anything. I, I, it sounds like a, a, a silly question, um, and you feel free not to answer this. But are there people who just their character you would recommend that they didn't learn PCW? They didn't yes. have the requisite variety to, to yes. be able to pull it off. Well, well, okay. What what kind of people uh, would be have would not be able to do it? People who have no um, sense of humor, uh, no ability for self reflection. People who uh, basically, if we're in the sort of um, the upper echelons of um, Trump Tower thinking, uh -huh. you know, I would say um, well, I have to edit that bit out. Um, <laughs> if you if, if you you gotta have an you gotta have an open mind. That's one. Yeah. You've got to really want to work with people and value working with people. Farrell used to say this. You have to be really invested. You have to be prepared to get in the trenches and do everything that you can do, even if it's not especially comfortable for you. In 2004, I did a training in London, and there was a young NLP trainer that now has developed his own approach. Um, and he said, well, I'm not sure if I would feel comfortable if I was doing this. And I said, well, with respect to you, this isn't about your comfort. This is about working for the client. So either get comfortable or refer the client to somebody else. You're there really to provide a service that helps the client to an agreed goal achieve certain ends. Mm. And you know, we're all in the process of learning and changing. So what I'm teaching now is constantly evolving and changing. I disagree with some of my previous ideas from years ago. It's a constant process of reflection and refinement. If you just keep doing the same thing, no matter how good it is without those two considerations, you're never going to evolve or develop anything new. So if, you, if you're working with someone, how do you go about setting the frame of what, uh, and scope of what you're going to be doing? I mean, are people going to kind of say to you, well, you know, can you guarantee that this is going to work? Am I going to be free of this issue? And how and do you I navigate never, those? Never guarantee anything because you've got to be on right from the outset. 
I will say to people, I mean, and I don't say, okay, now, you know, during this session, I may be sort of provoking some changes in you. Is that okay? Don't do anything like that. Mm-hmm. Essentially say, look, I'm here to work with you to assist you in being able to resolve this issue. I guarantee, I do not guarantee results, number one. So let's get that expectation sorted out straight away. But I will guarantee you best use of my time. And I can tell you that my success rate, according to my clients, not according to my brilliant thinking about myself, is very good based upon experience and based upon teaching in 13 different countries around the world of the therapists. So when I was doing the BBC sessions, there's no tightrope with that. You're on the air live working with people, so it either works or it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And the other thing as a coach or a therapist is to completely have the appreciation and understanding that sometimes, wait for it, hush tones, cue music, drum roll, things don't work. (sighs) Not everything works a hundred times. And that's fine. It just means you haven't figured out how best to go about it. Are you suggesting, Nick, that the people, the therapists that I've seen on their marketing say that they get 100% success are not not strictly being accurate? I would say I love the concept and I would love now for you to put your money where your mouth is. So I'll give you 100 clients or independently. We'll do an independent proper study. And then we will do a statistical analytical breakdown to see if the claim that's being made is actually met in uh, real life um, evidence. I always see clients at least twice. Yeah. I'll always test the work wherever possible. When we're doing the BBC stuff, I will, we would take people to the tropical house in Leeds where there's the spiders and the snakes and the flying insects. Which I have what... to tell everybody, by the way, because I am from Leeds originally, the Canal Gardens tropical world, phenomenal place. <laughs> uh, also, I work with a guy who um, uh, I work with who swam the channel you know now that's fairly straightforward he either gets there or he doesn't get there you know 17 hours 55 minutes you know part of me thinking god i hope he doesn't drown that would definitely not be good for business um you know how is that client that you worked on uh, dead no um i mean that's literally a sink or swim move for your business isn't it yeah it's a real literally it's not just a metaphorical it's a literal sink or swim but here's the in, here's the interesting thing with this client Pete Windridge France, who's on my site, nickkemptherapy.com. We did a whole documentary about this and discussion. The secret for him was being in the here and now and not getting into anticipatory mode, which created the problems. Mm. So it was all about state, which is like really simplifying. So most people who are listening to this, what I encourage people to, to think about the most, which is in the back of my head in all the work that I do, is how is the person creating and maintaining the problem state? What makes it better? What makes it worse? What do you want more of? What do you want less of? And how are you able to see and demonstrate the improvement in these differences? So the people who work in PCW are interested in evidence. Show me the evidence for things. Um, You can have all theory in the world, um, and that's great but show me the effectiveness of things. Um, Nick, have you got any, if people are interested in um, uh, PCW or in change work, are there any books that you can recommend they should go out and buy, read, learn, look at? 
books in terms of books i mean i had i had a mad amount of books i have a bookcase that was in my bedroom i had like everything you know all the first editions of stuff and you know what i never hardly read any of it um however having said that there are a couple of things i think are definitely worth looking at um the original frank farrelly book provocative therapy still in print worth worth looking at steve andres's uh transforming negative self-talk is definitely worth a good andrew t austin's the rainbow machine is a must read for any therapist in that it's wonderful collection of stories funny as hell and with his inimitable humor is a is a must read and i would say bill o'hanlon's um tap roots would definitely be something that i would recommend people would look at and also there's uh, my voice will go with you which is a Exxon, ericksonian collection of stories yeah. but with that caveat when people ask me about stuff i always say if you want to learn about things study people who are able to get and maintain attention look at people like george carlin stand-up comedian eddie izzard bill hicks Look at screenwriters writers like um, Aaron Sorkin, work on The West Wing and The Newsroom in particular. People who are able to get, maintain and, and direct attention. That's the heart of all change. You know, whether we call it rabbit, rabbit change, rapid change. What <laughs> <laughs> might be interesting, a whole new side program, rabbit change. Absolutely. Um, in order to be able to allow the person to influence themselves differently, you have to get the human connection. So look at people who are good and highly skilled at being able to do that. If people are listening to this and they want to find out more about you uh, or come along uh, and explore PCW with you, where can they go? How can they get in touch? Okay, you'll find me on Facebook. You know, you'll find uh, Nick Kemp on Facebook. Uh, NickKempTraining.com is one side, site. And also Nick Kemp, uh, sorry, ProvocativeChangeWorks, all one word, dot com. Um, you'll also find um, ProvocativeTherapy.com. I still run that site for classic um, provocative therapy. Mm -hmm. But I'm fairly easy to locate. You know, um, you can drop me an email to info, I-N-F-O, at Nick Kemp, N-I-C-K-K-E-M-P.com. And you can get me there quite easily as well. Fantastic. Nick, is there anything that when you, we talked about you coming on the Rapid Change Matters podcast that you thought would come up, but that we just haven't, haven't asked directly? I think the main areas, I mean, I think, you know, you're talking about rapid change. I think it's, I think it's the, a good element to look at because people think that change is based upon time it's not based upon time it's based upon environments it's based upon the internal environment the external environment and how you respond and react everybody listening to this will have things they never thought were possible in the past but now can do them absolutely fluidly easily and effortlessly and they'll have things now that they don't believe will be possible in the future that in the future they'll look back and think oh what was all that about? Mm -hmm. It's all a case of which bit changes things easily and quickly and effortlessly in the simplest fashion. So I teach clients, you're only really one thought away, thinking, feeling, and diff behaving differently. It's no more complicated than that. And the big complication often is created by the practitioners and the therapists in that they overcomplicate things rather than looking at things simply as a process. What makes it better? What makes it worse? When is it at its best? When is it at its worst? What do you want more of? What do you want less of? 
working with that frame, pretty much you can look at everything. And then, you know, when I'm teaching PCW, we will look at client conditions. So we'll say, well, what is the nature of anxiety? What is required in order for it to take place? What is the nature of anger, jealousy, food-related problems, phobias? What ingredients allow them to take place? And what things mean that those, those problem states will change? So we look at process more than content. So a PCW practitioner is a bit more like Bruce Lee of martial arts. Mm. They're multi-skilled. They're not just running in one direction. They may all have their different modes of expression. A lot of them have studied and looked at a lot of different things, like Joseph Ko, for example, a mutual friend of ours, mm. really excellent hypnotherapist, but brilliantly conversational and also with a background in improvisation and acting, which means he's much more personable and able to work in the here and now. Similarly, I have counterparts in Slovakia and in especially in Japan and now a really growing group of people in Austin, Texas with um, Katie Raver's group. And they're all invested and interested in what's possible rather than just relying upon what they read, heard or saw in a training back in whenever. So, you know, we're looking at what works and how to make things work better, which is the theory of a lot of approaches, but often isn't the translation. Yeah. No, it's what you have is you have lots of people that go on courses where they instill in you this idea, you know, that you've got to let uh, you know, the results guy, you've got to be flexible, you've got to look at what works. Um, and instead of doing that, they just recite that as a mantra and do what they've been told. Well, let's take the flexibility thing very quickly you say okay you need to be able to be flexible you need to be developing things you need to be uh, highly effective in education and yet you go on some courses the manual is exactly the same 20 years on mm. the wall charts are exactly the same everything is exactly the same the stories that are told as examples in the course are exactly the same it's a complete personification of a lack of change in fluidity it's exactly the same there's nothing, there's nothing different. Even the music that's played is the same. The, the layout is the same. Everything is exactly the same. You think, I'm in some parallel, I'm in Groundhog Day, experiencing the same thing over and over again. Make it different. When I used to teach the pra uh, practitioner course, on the last day, what I used to do is the students used to come into the course and the room, all the chairs would be cleared out. And there'll be a little table with a little note that says, this is your last exercise of the course. You now will enter the center of leads with the assistants who have video cameras, and you will demonstrate to the public elements of what you've learned on the course. And we will then look at the footage later on. Wow. Out of the building, out of the NLP bubble, into the wider world. Now, of course, I was setting up for people to do this from day one. So it wasn't I was just throwing them into the fiery pit. And I talked to one of the master trainers in the NLP company where I used to certificate people. And he went, oh, my God, you're not doing that. I go, you know what? Otherwise, how do you know it's integrated into real life experience? Yeah. People, people are just in the same room with the same happy, cheery bunch of people listening to the same music, all very pleased with their own skills. That's great. But let's see how this translates into the wider world. And you know what? People did really, really well. Well, otherwise, it's like learning to play the guitar without picking it up. 
well, is that or, or, you know, the theory of it or saying, OK, I know that you can't play any tunes, any notes or tune a guitar. But trust me, it is all unconsciously installed. Um, is there anything, any final words? Final words. OK, hmm. as I say to as I say to some of my clients or some of my students, if you had one thing to say before you left this planet, what what advice would you <laughs> give to the rest of the poor struggling therapists and practitioners who are left behind on the ever more nuts planet earth and the thing i would say in working with people is number one um treat literally what people say treat what people say literally resist the temptation to want to interpret it in your own way so listen to the language of how people how people respond verbally how people respond non-verbally number one Number two, remember, change is not time-based. It's not time-based. It's based, it's environment-based. It's on how people attend, pay attention and what they pay attention to. And number three, we have no idea fully of what's possible. You know, it's a constant exploration. So you never stop learning. Even when things are working brilliantly, there's always the option to be able to improve and make things work better. You know, and the fourth thing is that if you want to work with people, you have to really like people. You have to be really invested in wanting to help them. Otherwise, go do something like work in Walmart or become an accountant or something. Um, you know, the best people that I have seen, the most successful people, have a good sense of humor, have a good personability. They're nosy people. They're, they, they're, they're nosy people. They like to know what's going on. And they have a point of view. You know, they don't have this, everybody's brilliant, everybody's doing everything. No, they're not. They're not at all. Um, I respect people who have a point of view, even if it's completely different to mine, because at least they have a standpoint. Well, listen, Nick, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Uh, and I hope uh, our listeners have enjoyed it. I've certainly taken away loads of stuff that I'm going to be mulling over and thinking through over the coming <laughs> days ahead. Again, just to remind the listeners, we're going to put all of the links and the recommendations, the references that Nick's uh, mentioned, along with some clips of Nick doing some real stuff on the rapidchange.works page that accompanies this episode. Uh, as always, feel free to submit a comment underneath the episode. and uh, Hopefully, I may be able to entice Nick to uh, have a look at some of the comments and respond as well uh, on there if anyone's got anything they want to to do. If people have an interest, I'm always interested in, in, I'm happy to respond to people. How I first um, made a connection and learned from Frank was because I was just really interested in what he was doing. Hmm. Um, At that time, there wasn't a lot of information out there. And I sort of banged the drum for this. And I'm fully aware that it's outside of what how most people think and what most people believe and for some people it's pretty challenging but here's the key thing it's highly effective and more and more you know across the world people who are studying this are finding out for themselves and the clients are benefiting which is the main thing absolutely Uh, and, and thank you for spending time with us today my pleasure howard i hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did Why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change matters hyphen podcast. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those upcoming live events that will help you hone those change work skills.